Hey, American Hauntings fans, it's Troy. I probably don't have to remind you about where you can listen to the podcast. I mean, since you're listening right now, but we also have another podcast called Dead Men Do Tell Tales that's available only on Patreon. Two seasons of it are already streaming, and last week we kicked off our third season. It's called Sinister, and it features the life and crimes of H.H. Holmes. That's right, a full season of Holmes, his murder castle, the 1893 World's Fair, murders, swindles, and a whole lot more. So become a supporter and check out that podcast at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. You won't be sorry. And now, on with the show. In the summer of 1992, a young man named Christopher McCandless died a tragic death in the wilds of Alaska. He'd long before left his old life behind and had wandered the American West, working when he needed money to support his simple lifestyle and exploring the world outside of the normalcy of everyday life. In April 1992, he headed into the Alaskan wilderness determined to live off the land, but it turned out to be Chris's final journey. On September 6th, a pair of moose hunters came across an old rusted bus just outside Denali National Park in Alaska. The bus was a strange sight in the middle of the wilderness, but over the years, it had become well known to hunters and hikers. It was often used as a camp for travelers and trappers who visited the area. But stranger than the bus, though, was the sight of the crumpled note that had been fixed to its door. A handwritten letter read, Attention possible visitors. SOS, I need your help. I am injured, near death, and too weak to walk out of here. I'm all alone. This is no joke. In the name of God, please remain to save me. I'm out collecting berries close by and shall return this evening. Thank you. Chris McCandless. Question mark. August. But Chris was not out picking berries. He was inside the bus. He died 19 days before. Author John Krakauer chronicled Chris's life as he rambled across the West, although little is known about his time in the wilderness where he died. He kept a diary that detailed the events that led up to his death, but the weaker he got, the less sense the entries made, and his death remains a mystery. What we do know is that Chris hitchhiked from South Dakota to Fairbanks, Alaska in April 1992. The last man to give him a ride was a local electrician named Jim Gallion, who dropped him at the head of Stampede Trail on April 28th. Jim later said he had deep doubts about Chris's ability to survive in the wild, unforgiving wilderness. Chris didn't seem to have the appropriate equipment for survival, but insisted he would be fine with his light backpack, meager rations, several books, and his rifle. Jim insisted on giving him a pair of Wellington boots that he had in his truck. Chris accepted them and then, with a smile and a wave, vanished down the trail. Chris ended his hike at the old bus, deciding it would make the perfect campsite for his adventurous summer. For the next 113 days, he lived there, surviving off a nine-pound bag of rice that he brought with him, as well as local plants and small game, like squirrels and game birds. At one point, he managed to shoot a moose, but the meat went bad before he could figure out how to preserve it. Chris's journal entries described his daily life, his hikes, and the food he ate, and despite his inexperience, he did well at first. However, the last month of entries told a different story. After three months, Chris decided to return to society. He packed up his camp and began the trek back to the trailhead and the highway. Unfortunately, the trail he'd taken to the bus was now flooded, thanks to snowmelt in the high elevations. It was too deep and dangerous to attempt to cross. Chris returned to the bus in despair, and after that, his journey entries became bleaker, and he wrote less frequently. One week before his death, he wrote his final entry, which read only, Beautiful Blueberries. From then until day 113, the last day of his life, his entries were only marked with slashes. When the hunters who later found his note entered the bus, they found Chris's body in his sleeping bag. He'd been dead for some time, but what actually killed him has been debated ever since. It was initially assumed he'd starved to death. His food supply had run out, and the hungrier he got, the harder it was for him to find the energy to get up and hunt. In the end, park rangers believe he simply wasted away. 
It's also possible, based on his entries about what he ate, that Chris may have eaten the poisonous seeds of a wild sweet pea, believing they were something else. Under ordinary circumstances, the poison wouldn't have been fatal, but Chris's body was likely too weak to fight against it. Well, we'll never know for sure what killed Chris, but we do know that his life ended in just the way he wanted it to. He roamed the wild regions, leaving a little of himself behind with all the people he met along his journey and explored what it meant to truly live beyond what everyone else saw as normal. Chris mailed one last letter to a friend before he departed for Alaska. If this adventure proves fatal and you don't hear from me again, he wrote, I want you to know that you're a great man. I now walk into the wild. And he did just that and never came back. As tragic as his story is, though, at least it has an ending. We know what happened to Chris McCandless. But Chris was not the only dreamer to walk into the wild and never return. In fact, the last years of Chris's life were inspired by another young man who came before him. His name was Everett Roos, and he vanished without a trace into the Utah Canyonlands in 1934. For many years after, Everett lived on as a legend a Western myth that was the embodiment of seeking beauty and freedom in nature. Little remained of him save for an inscription on a wall of stone in Southern Utah's Davis Gulch. It read Nemo, 1934, an enigmatic reminder from Everett that all of us are no one in the greater scheme of things. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to our latest season, Gone, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. America is a place that is filled with mystery and strangeness. It's a place where tragic events occur and where mysteries exist for which no rational explanation can be found. Those mysteries include unexplained disappearances, just like the ones we've been discussing this season. We've been opening the files on people who have vanished without a trace, never to be seen again. Their stories are often bizarre, unexpected, and sometimes seem impossible. But one thing we do know is that they did happen, and that these people simply walked out the door one day and never returned. Their stories have no conclusion. Their cases remain open. Their mysteries unsolved. They are gone, but we won't allow them to be forgotten. This is episode nine of our latest season, the story of a wanderer who never hesitated to walk off the beaten path and into the wild. Everett Roos was born in Oakland, California in 1914, the younger of two sons, raised by Christopher and Stella Roos. Christopher was a graduate of Harvard Divinity School and was a poet, philosopher, and Unitarian minister. To feed his family, though, he worked as a bureaucrat in the California penal system. Stella was a headstrong woman with artistic ambitions for both herself and her family. She even published a private literary journal, the Roos Quartet, with the family motto emblazoned on the cover, glorify the hour. They were a close-knit and nomadic family. They moved across the country, living in Oakland, Fresno, Los Angeles, Boston, Brooklyn, New Jersey, and Indiana, finally settling in Southern California when Everett was 14. Now, it's no surprise that Everett turned out the way that he did. Living in Los Angeles, he attended the Otis Art School and Hollywood High School, but it was tough to keep him inside and stuck in one place. So at age 16, in the summer of 1930, he embarked on his first solo journey, hitchhiking up the California coast to see Yosemite and Big Sur, ending up in Carmel. Two days after arriving there, he knocked on the door of Edward Weston, the famous nature photographer, who was charmed by the young man and agreed to teach him about art. Over the next two months, he encouraged Everett's uneven but promising efforts at painting and block printing and permitted him to hang around the studio with his sons, Neil and Cole. At the end of the summer, Everett returned home just long enough to earn a high school diploma, which he received in January 1931. Less than a month later, 
he was on the road again, tramping alone through the sparsely populated desert lands of Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico. Except for a single semester at UCLA, two extended visits with his parents and a winter in San Francisco, which he managed to spend in the company of photographers Dorothea Lang and Ansel Adams and painter Maynard Dixon, Everett spent the rest of his life constantly on the move. He lived on little money, right out of his backpack, sleeping on the ground and going hungry for days at a time. And he couldn't have been happier. Everett kept a diary and wrote numerous letters to his friends and family, telling them of his serene and tempestuous days, as he called them, scaling cliffs, wandering through canyons, and walking across the desert. He befriended many of those he met. He learned to speak Navajo and once sang with a medicine man at the bedside of a sick girl. Hopi Indians painted Bruce and allowed him to participate in their traditional antelope dance, which was a high honor. One day in June 1931, Randolph Pat Jinks and Tad Nichols were driving from Cameron, Arizona to Flagstaff when they came upon Everett and his burrow, Pegasus. Everett was badly sunburned, half-starved, and dehydrated. The two men stopped to ask him if he wanted a drink, but Everett, thinking they had asked him for water, started to unhook one of the two canteens he had strapped to the side of the burrow. He had only a small amount of water left, but was immediately willing to share it, Nichols recalled many years later. It was just the kind of guy he was. Jinx and Nichols drove Everett to Flagstaff, and the young artist stayed at Jinx's ranch under the San Francisco peaks for several weeks, painting the Aspens. They became close friends, and then, just as suddenly as he had appeared on the side of the road, Everett vanished. For a time, Everett reportedly worked with archaeologists from the University of California, excavating ruins near Cayenta, Arizona. His lack of regard for his own safety frightened some of them. One time in camp, he stood on the edge of a 400-foot cliff in a rainstorm and did a watercolor sketch of a waterfall, archaeologist H.C. Lockett told Desert Magazine in 1939. I remember this clearly because I personally was scared to death just watching him perched on the edge of the cliff. Everett financed his wanderings by selling prints and paintings, but he never stayed in the same place for long. He once wrote, there is always an undercurrent of restlessness and wild longing. The wind is in my hair, there is fire in my heels, and I shall always be a rover, I know. According to everything that exists, Everett continued to roam the Southwest until the age of 20, when he disappeared for good. The last letters anyone received from him were posted from the Mormon settlement of Escalante, 57 miles north of a place called Davis Gulch on November 11th, 1934. The letters were addressed to his parents and brother Waldo, and he advised them he would be incommunicado for a month or two. Eight days after mailing the letters, Everett encountered two sheep herders about a mile from the gulch and spent two nights at their camp. They became the last people known to have seen Everett alive. He did leave one last marker in his wake, though. Later discovered carved into the sandstone walls of the gulch, Everett twice etched the name Nemo, Latin for nobody and then vanished. About three months after Everett left Escalante, his parents received a bundle of unopened mail forwarded from the postmaster at Marble Canyon, Arizona. Everett was supposed to have picked it up, but was now long overdue. He left his home address on file, so the postmaster sent it all to his parents. Worried, Christopher and Stella contacted the authorities in Escalante, who organized a search party in March 1935. Starting from the sheep camp where he was last seen, they began combing the surrounding region and soon found Everett's two burrows deep in Davis Gulch, peacefully grazing behind a makeshift corral that had been fashioned from brush and tree branches. The burrows were confined in the upper canyon and nearby under a large natural arch, they found Everett's Nemo 1934 inscription. Four pieces of Anasazi pottery, which Everett had likely discovered, were neatly arranged a few feet away. Three months later, searchers came across another Nemo inscription a little deeper into the gulch, although both have long since disappeared under the waters of Lake Powell. Except for the burrows and their tack, none of Everett's possessions, including his camping gear, journals, and paintings were ever found. Everett was simply gone, and the question of what happened to him has produced many theories, but no answers. 
Given the rough area where he was camping, it was conjectured that Everett may have fallen to his death while scrambling up or down one of the canyon walls, but no search ever turned up human remains. His parents came to believe that he was murdered for his belongings and likely based their belief on the confession of an outlaw Navajo named Jack Crank. His story was inconsistent, though, and no corpse was discovered where he said it would be, despite several intense searches. If he wasn't killed, there remains a mystery as to why Everett would have left the gulch with a heavy load of gear, but without his pack animals. This bewildering puzzle has led some to conclude that he was murdered by a gang of cattle rustlers known to have been in the area. It was thought they might have stolen his belongings, buried his remains, or thrown them in the Colorado River. Many of the people that Everett met on his wilderness trips liked him so much, they contacted his parents with offers to help in the search. Reporters from Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Salt Lake City covered the searches, and their reports provoked interest and leads flooded in from around the country. In the first few months after he vanished, Everett was allegedly spotted in all sorts of places, from a transient camp in Florida to a mine in Moab, Utah, and even hitchhiking on a Mexican highway. None of these leads panned out, though, and the search continued. In early 1935, a California miner named Neil Johnson heard about Everett's disappearance and offered to help look for him. Johnson had spent his entire life in the outdoors and was known as an expert tracker. He seemed the perfect person to lead the search. When he arrived in Utah, he was met by John Terrell, a reporter from the Salt Lake Tribune. In August, Douglas and Terrell journeyed through miles of wild country. They swam the Colorado and then continued north to Davis Gulch. At this point, Johnson and a Native American guide they'd hired became puzzled and spent two days thoroughly searching the area for any sign of Everett. They finally concluded the boy had gone into the canyon, but he hadn't come out. Even so, there was no trace of a body, a grave, or anything that might explain where Everett could have gone. Despite all the failed searches, interest in Everett's fate continued. In the summer of 1941, two Paiute men told Tony Richardson, a trading post owner at Tonalia, Arizona, that a white man had been found sleeping, which means dead if you didn't realize, in the sand along the Colorado River in Utah. At the same time, Richardson also heard rumors from the Navajo reservation about medicine men holding squaw dances using the scalp of a white man. A tiny piece of it was sliced off for each dance and afterward it was buried to kill his spirit. The scalp was said to be from a sleeping man who was blonde. Everett had been fair-skinned, but not quite blonde. The identity of that dead man, if there really was a dead man, was never determined. Most of Everett's friends and members of the search parties reached the conclusion that Everett had been murdered and his body disposed of somewhere in the desert. Pat Jenks, who owned the ranch where Everett lived for a time, believed that he stumbled upon a group of Paiute who were on their way to Escalante for winter supplies and they killed him and stole his gear. Tad Nichols, though, disagreed. I don't believe he was killed by Indians, he said in 1997. He got along well with them, and maybe they didn't like him poking into caves and through their ceremonial material, but I don't think they were responsible. He believed Everett likely died in a flash flood or fell off a cliff. Stories about Everett continued to make the rounds, and strange discoveries were sometimes still made. Nearly 30 years after he was last seen, archaeologists digging at what is now Arizona's Lake Powell found his canteen and some other gear, including dried up tubes of paint and a box of razor blades from the Owl Drug Company of Los Angeles. They were Everett's brand, but that was about all anyone could say for sure. How had it gotten there and who had left it? Was it Everett or someone else? Uh, no one knows. In 1976, when Grand Canyon photographer and local legend Emery Cole died, friends searching through his belongings found a human skeleton hidden under a boat in his garage, which we talked about in an earlier episode. The skull had a hole behind the right ear and rattling around inside of it was a 32 caliber slug. Some speculated the skull had belonged to Everett Roos. Now you might remember in that episode about Glenn and Bessie Hyde, the mystery of the skull was eventually solved. It had belonged to a man who committed suicide on the rim of the canyon. That meant the skull didn't belong to Everett or Glenn Hyde, but no one will ever know why Emery Kolb had it in his garage. In 1983, another Nemo inscription turned up on a canyon wall along the San Juan River, and rumors persisted that Navajo medicine men were continuing to have visions of Everett alive and well. 
Some believe that Everett Roos never died at all, but simply vanished. One man claimed he knew a man who had definitely bumped into Roos in the late 1960s at a remote Hogan on a Navajo Indian reservation. According to the man, Everett had married a Navajo woman with whom he had raised at least one child. But then in 2008, all the searches came to an end. The mystery of Everett Roos had finally been solved. But had it really? In May 2008, Daisy Johnson visited her younger brother, Denny Belson, who lived on a Navajo reservation and told him a story about their family that he'd never heard before. It was a story about their grandfather, Anath Nez, and it took place in the 1930s. According to the account, Nez had been sitting on the rim of Comb Ridge, which is a sandstone rock that crosses the Utah-Arizona border. For several days, he watched a young white man riding up and down the canyon below him. He had two mules, one that he rode and one that he used as a pack animal. He acted like he was looking for something. One day, Nez saw the young man down in the riverbed, only this time he was yelling and riding fast. Nez saw that three Ute Indians were chasing the man. They caught up with him, hit him in the head, and knocked him off his mule. They stole everything and left the man there to die. As the scene below unfolded, Nez stayed out of view. The Utes and the Navajo had been enemies for centuries, and as late as the 1930s, tensions between the two groups had erupted into violence. He waited until the Utes were gone and then descended Combridge into the bed of Chinley Wash. The young man was dead by the time that Nez got to him. Rather than looking for a burial site in the open wash, the Navajo hauled the body up onto the ridge and placed him in a crevice. For more than three decades, Aneth Nez kept quiet about this horrible incident. In the 1930s, the murder of a white man would have brought an invading force of law enforcement officers onto the reservation and would have caused a lot of trouble for himself and all the local families. Because of this, Nez felt that he should keep the story to himself. Then in 1971, at the age of 72, he became ill with cancer and went to a medicine man to seek traditional treatment. He revealed to the healer the story of the murder and his subsequent movement of the body, a close encounter with death the Navajo believe can cause sickness. The medicine man had told him that the only cure for his cancer was to retrieve a lock of hair from the head of the young man that he had buried years before. The hair would then be used in a five-day healing ceremony. Daisy Johnson, who was then 19 years old, took her grandfather out to the white man's grave. He retrieved the lock of hair and after the ceremony, lived for another 10 years. It was a healing that gave Daisy hope and the reason for her return to the reservation to see her brother in 2008. The previous year, she had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer. She went through a brutal regimen of chemotherapy and the cancer went into remission, but only for a year. Now that it was back, Daisy decided to see a medicine man. He told her that her sickness had happened because of her grandfather and a darkness that had become attached to their family after he handled the young man's corpse. As he listened to the story, Denny Belson realized the grave of the white man must be close to the house that he built in 1993. He became obsessed with finding the grave that his grandfather had dug in that crevice. Over the next few weeks, Belson, who worked as a carpenter and craftsman, spent his free time hiking on Comb Ridge, looking into every crack and crevice along the rim. Then one day, in a shadowy crevice just under the crest of the comb, he found the grave. The bones had clearly been placed there quickly. His grandfather had been in fear for his life, so Belson couldn't see much of the body. But Belson, also a traditional Navajo, didn't touch anything. He called his sister and then brought his friend Vaughn Haddonfeld out to the ranch. Haddonfeld knew the story of Everett Roos, although Denny Belson had never heard of him before. Haddonfeld wasn't convinced at first that this could be the grave of Everett Roos or any white man. He knew that the Navajo commonly practiced burials of human remains along with certain personal possessions and natural fissures in the rocks. He thought this could be a Navajo crevice burial, but then reconsidered. Something wasn't right about it. 
The body was only partially buried and the top of the skull, intact but fragile, was protruding from the dirt as if the victim was in a sitting position. There was a dent in the back of the cranium as if from a mortal blow. Outside the crevice was a wooden stirrup, tattered strips of leather, and the frame of a saddle with a rusted iron pommel. Also lying on the ground was a black leather belt decorated with iron studs. Curiously, the belt was buckled, so it was closed in an empty loop. A short time later, Belson contacted the FBI about the body. Agents were skeptical about whether the grave was that of a white man. It was not uncommon to find indigenous graves, and on those occasions, they were covered back up and left alone. But a team from the FBI did come out to the site and left it in great disarray. One of the investigators attempted to pick up the skull and it broke into pieces. They left thinking it was nothing more than a Navajo burial, piled some rocks over it, and left. But others were not so sure, including David Roberts from National Geographic Adventure magazine. He brought archaeologist Ron Maldonado to the site, arranged for a computer reconstruction of the skull by the University of Colorado at Boulder, and launched a DNA analysis of the remains that could be compared to surviving members of the Roos family. The initial analysis was inconclusive. There were also other problems. Witness accounts conflicted with Aneth Nez's stories. For the burial site on Comb Ridge to belong to Everett, a couple of logistical problems had to be resolved. The most troublesome had to do with Everett's mules. In March 1935, searchers found his animals in Davis Gulch, abandoned in a makeshift pen. Why would the Utes have stolen the two burrows in Chinley Wash, only to leave them 60 miles away in a side canyon near the Escalante River? But what if the animals found in the Davis Gulch were not Everett's? Well, many believe the story of finding the mules was unreliable. According to the official account, after the search team recovered the animals, one man, Gail Bailey, had led them back to Escalante and had pastured them nearby. But when writer David Roberts spoke to old timers in the region years later, he was told again and again that Bailey had found them on his own before the search for Everett had been organized. Bailey, who died in 1997, may have lied about the mules belonging to Everett, or he might have found them somewhere other than where he claimed. Well, a lie could help resolve the second mystery, which was that Everett Roos would have had to cover more than 60 miles between Davis Gulch and the Colm Ridge. In four years of exploring the harsh desert regions, Everett had never been known to stray far from his pack animals. But if he took the burrows with him, there's nothing improbable about the trip. Well, after the first DNA test failed to come up with clear-cut answers, a second test, this time comparing a molar from the grave with saliva samples from Roos's two nieces and two nephews, was underway. In late April, it was announced that results revealed a match. The remains belonged to Everett Roos. But wait a minute. That announcement was quickly reversed. In October, a new press release announced that a second test had been wrong. Everett's nephew, Brian Roos, stated that the remains found in southern Utah were not those of his uncle. He told the press, After further DNA testing, the Roos family is now convinced the remains found last year and reported to be those of Everett Roos are in fact the remains of someone else. The bones and associated artifacts found with them were returned to the Navajo Nation for reburial. Everett Roos had been lost all over again. His vanishing remains unsolved, and likely, thanks to this, his legend lives on. Only a handful of American adventurers have ever stirred as much passion and speculation as Everett Roos has over the years. His wandering spirit just simply refuses to rest. Author Wallace Stegner described Everett as an artistic athlete, a callow romantic, and a primitive wanderer of the wastelands. It's as good of a description as I've ever heard for Everett, but it's the last line in Stegner's description that seems to fit Everett the best. It reads, But one who died, if he died, with the dream intact. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. 
They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Okay, cool. All right. Alrighty, well, thanks for returning for more episodes of the American Hauntings Podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. This is season seven of the podcast, which we call Gone. Oh, that was a good one. Is that okay? Good. okay? I think so, yeah. All right. We'll see how it shakes out. But I'm your yeah. co-host, Cody Beck. With me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. I could do it again if you want me to. You we know, like, we, yeah, we, can, okay. we can get an all. All right. Well, well, I guess we've got more episodes coming. So uh, yeah, yeah. I should maybe make a list of how I'm going to read it or gone each time. So. Yeah, you got a lot. We're not even <laughs> what halfway through yet now. No, <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. So it, well, it's only May. Yeah, it goes till December. So yeah, so got a long way to go yet. So got a lot of opportunities. For yeah, not only do we have a long way to go, but is this the week we're going to announce what we're doing next week? Yes. I mean, in addition to, I think everybody knows by now, because we've talked about it a million times, that we started the new Patreon season um, this past uh, Tuesday. You guys got the trailer for it last week, and it uh, premiered. And uh, we, I, I, I'm going to say it's my favorite of all of the ones we've done. In fact, it may be one of my favorite episodes altogether. I mean, yeah. not just Patreon episodes. I mean, for real episodes. All of them, because the special effects or the sound effects are great. Uh, the music, you just, I mean, you really nailed it, honestly. I, I'm not kidding, I'm, and I'm not exaggerating. And it really is, I think, my favorite episode we've ever done. It just turned out perfect, man. It was exactly what I wanted. Well, I mean, if you. you could do something about the narrator. Uh, ah, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> kind of stuck with him, as it turns out. But um, oh. I was really happy with how it turned out. And yeah. people have really given us a lot of great feedback about it. So um, if you're still thinking about checking it out, um, I hope you will, um, because it, it is that good. Uh, just go to patreon.com slash American Hauntings and you can check it out and, um, you know, get signed up. And we've got a lot of episodes. I, I'm not saying every episode, every season has been 10 episodes. Mm -hmm. 
I'm not going to say ahead of time this time because I don't know yet. You know, I don't I just don't know. Yeah. So it's going to be at least 10 episodes. <laughs> so we'll leave it at that. Perfect. OK, <laughs> won't be but, any won't be any fewer than that. <laughs> but speaking of 10 episodes, we do have something else already planned out, and that will also start next week. So on the 23rd, when you can get the next Patreon podcast, you can also get a free podcast on this feed. You want to tell them what it is? Troy, we're we're taking them back to Alton. We are going back just, to Alton. Yep. Our very first season of the podcast was, well, and that was the reason that you wanted to do the podcast in the first place, mm -hmm. is for us to do some stories about Alton for a podcast. And not only have we done it already, that was our first season, we're now up to season seven, we've decided to revisit some of the Alton, well, actually, we're revisiting some of the locations from the first one, but mostly we're just giving you new stories. Mm -hmm. uh, we're expanding on some stories and just giving you all brand new ones. And we are, um, you know, going back to the beginning and we're doing Alton mm -hmm. stories. And um, those are just going to be an extra podcast. You don't have to do anything to get it. All you got to do is check your regular feed. And, and if you've got it set to subscribe and download, you're just going to get it every Tuesday. Um, you're going to get this show, these this season, every every other Tuesday, and then in between, you're not only going to get these new Alton shows, but if you're smart enough to be a Patreon subscriber or supporter, you're going to get that show, too. So you'll have two shows to listen to every other week. Yeah. So um, the first one is finished and it's going up next week. And uh, I think you guys will like it. It's uh, it's an oddball episode. So. It's cr it's crazy. And the topic, I won't say it, but the way you tied these things all together, <laughs> they have a common theme. Yeah. It makes sense. Um, also, yeah. In what, a way. Yeah. What, um, uh, what were we thinking? We already have way too much to do. And so I let's know. toss on some Alton. But I know, it's going to be fun. It'll be Alton with better audio. It'll be Alton yeah. with new stories you probably haven't heard unless you've read Troy's um, latest version of the Haunted Alton book. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to uh, to go back home for a little yeah, bit. Me too. Me too. So, but speaking of Alton, let me throw this stuff in here real quick um, mm -hmm. because we are um, we came up with a way to kick off Memorial Day weekend. Uh, I'm going to be doing a Ghost of the River Road tour uh, on the Friday of of the weekend. Um, I've got a St. Louis exorcism dinner on Saturday, but it's been sold out for like a month and a half. Uh, but I do have another one of those coming up before the conference. So. Anyway, this is kind of like the River Road Tour is kind of like the best way to kick off, you know, um, the summer, I think, mm -hmm. as far as our tours go, uh, because we travel back and forth between Grafton or between Alton and Grafton. Um, there's food involved. There's booze involved. It's just it's a fun night. And I'm also doing on June 9th, again, before the conference, I'm kind of front loading before the conference because I got a couple of things going on. Um, and I have a Great River uh, Hauntings tour, which is our brand new one. Uh, it's a river road tour, but it is not the same river road tour. It's different stories. And we're having dinner at Pier Marquette Lodge with the all you can eat chicken and all that stuff. So, oh, anyway, so check out that tour, uh, our other summer tours and our dinner events. Um, before the conference, I got a Edgar Allan Poe evening and another St. Louis exorcism evening. So, um, you know, we, we, we've been adding a lot of new things in Alton in addition to our new Alton podcast, uh, in addition mm -hmm. to this one. And that uh, you can find that stuff at dinnerandspirits.com. And I already mentioned the conference. I'm not going to keep mentioning it, but I am going to – I guess that's what I said last week too, and then I mention it. But, but mm -hmm. we are running out of time. Uh, we really are. Not only are we running out of time, we're running out of seats, which I thought was impossible. Um, mostly because we thought, well, we're not going to, you know, w there's a, there was a reasonable number that we came up with that we said that's enough, mm -hmm. you know, that's enough people for the first time in a new location. And now we're almost there. And so, and we're not going to go over it. So if you are thinking about, or even I mean, I've talked to so many people, I go, well, do you know about our conference? And they're like, yeah, yeah, I've been thinking about coming. Okay. Well, if you're thinking about it now, it's time to decide. Yeah. Even if you only sign up for, I mean, don't even, you don't even have to sign up for an after hours event, just get a general admission ticket and then whatever's available at the conference, because we, we already hit the deadline on shirts. So you can't pre-order those. As far as the handful of after-hour stuff we've got left, we're we're gonna have a few things probably available at the conference, so we can get it then. But 
don't miss out on getting your tickets. Um, I'm I'm going to be in addition to Cody and I both being there doing stuff, but I'm also going to be releasing my next book that weekend. It's the one I, I it's one I co-wrote with Amanda Woomer, um, who uh, has been at the conference the last couple of years. And um, we are putting that out. Both of us will be there to sign it. Doesn't happen very often. So it kind of had to come out because she mm-hmm. lives in New York. So it kind of had uh-huh. to come out at the conference. Uh, but maybe that's an incentive to get you there to get us both signing it because we're usually not the same place. Uh, anyway, it's June 23rd, 24th. Come see Cody and I. Check out the website at ghostconference.net and see the new location, the new stuff we're offering, everything. It's going to be a blast. I'm finally, I mean, I've been excited about it, but now I'm starting to get really amped up about it. Yeah. So it's going to be great. Yeah, I'm, I'm stoked. The new, uh, you know, new place, but place that I'm very familiar with. Yeah, one you know really well. Yeah, yeah, and um, just the the next the next kind of chapter of the conference, you know. So yeah. I think it's yeah. a new chapter. Yeah, um, cool. Well, let me dive into a listener review here real quick. Okay. This one is titled "Great Podcast." It's from Nikki, with like ten Y's, maybe four seven seven nine nine five four. Um, this reminds me of, like the old AOL chat room days of, like <laughs> and screen name stuff, Nikki, but it's just titled, uh, it just says great podcast topics are always interesting and it's a perfect mix of narrative and dialogue. So thank you so much for leaving that short little review on iTunes for us. You're not going to read the one your mom put up. Which one about my, my which one that my your mom, mom put on there? Oh, I put one on the, about yeah, the swearing. She, she did. Yeah. She didn't like the, the F. The well, F-box. you know, that's why we put the explicit thing on there. And it, we don't like we do it all the time. I know. The majority of the podcast is swearing free. <laughs> so, true. I mean, because I mean, you know, I'm reading it and I'm trying to be cool. <laughs> and so right. I'm not swearing through the monologue, but whatever. Anyway, yeah. sorry I about usually- that. I usually do put the uh, I think I started putting the explicit thing because there was cussing. But then after a while, I was like, yeah, we're talking usually about like, you know, dismemberment or something. So this probably yeah, it's probably all explicit. Qual- yeah, yeah kind of qualifies. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, didn't want to this take- one isn't very explicit. It's not. It's more it's more sad. And this uh, is the one I told you was coming. Remember, you yes. were like afraid. So there was and I said, well, this is a sad one that's coming. So yes. the Ambrose Bierce one is just kind of fun. Because, uh-huh. I mean, yes, I understand he disappeared without a trace, and I'm sure his family was distraught, but yeah, I could tell you he wasn't. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but this one is is actually kind of sad. Even if both of them, the people we talk about, probably ended up just the way they wanted to, it still sucks for the people that they left behind because they did leave a lot of people behind. Yes. So. Yeah, so Summer 92, Christopher McCandless, McCandless? Yeah, McCandless. Yeah, Chris McCandless. Um, you've probably seen the movie. If you haven't yes. read the book, you've probably seen the movie. Yeah, I remember uh, Into, Into the which Wild, is, yeah. Which is probably one of my top movies of all time. Really? I absolutely love that movie. I think it's fantastic. I think it does a great job. It, it actually kind of updates the story from the book. Uh, when John Krakauer put out a paperback version of the book, he updated it to put in some new information about how Chris probably died. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they include that in the movie, which that wasn't in the original version of the book or the article that he wrote that led to it. But yeah, I, I just um, it's a great book. It's a uh, it's a just a brutal movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, as far as how it ends, you know, well, the same way as life ends. I mean, that's pretty brutal. But in the movie, you really see all the people he came into contact with that they've, you know, taken from print and turned into real life. I don't know. I just I love that movie. It's usually this sounds weird, but it's like one of the it's always the first movie I watch every time I move because huh. nine times out of ten, my cable's not hooked up yet. So I have to put in a, a Blu-ray. And so I just always pick that one. I don't know how that got started, but I do it every time I move. I watch that movie. So I, and, like I mean, I watch it other times too because I really like it. But um, yeah, that's my. It's just kind of a ritual thing. Yeah, no, I have some stuff like that too, and it's funny how those things will get started. And um, but uh, yeah, I, I, it it is a it's a it's a beautiful movie. It's a brutal movie. Wow. Uh, I haven't I haven't read the book, but I might have to add it to the to the list. But 113 days surviving off a bag of rice and whatever else he could yeah, find. Yeah, whatever huh? he could scrounge up. Yeah, yeah, Damn. I know. Um, yeah, I just said that Chris mails that one letter, last letter to a friend before he departed for Alaska. And says, if this adventure proves fatal and you don't hear from me again, he wrote, I want you to know that you're a great man. I now walk into the wild. Uh, that's, yeah, it is. It's, it's 
poetic. I, I it don't is. Know it is. It's poetic and it's sad. And, and in a lot of ways, you know, I mean, I don't know. This is one of those stories, actually both stories that we can look at and go, you know, we romanticize these stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm terrible about that when it comes to this, to into the wild. I mean, I romanticize that in my brain and should we probably not because mm-hmm. honestly, what a waste. You know, yeah. what a waste of two lives that really could have amounted to something. I mean, I, I get it. Like with Chris, he, you know, wanted to turn his back on modern life and just kind of. But but there are so many things that he inspired so many people. Everybody he met, mm-hmm. you know, never forgot about him. Same way with same way with um, with um, Everett. You know, yeah. he inspired all these people he met. They never forgot about him. They came from all over the West to search for him you know, when he was lost because they liked him, they remembered him. And, you know, and, and the same thing with, with Chris, with all these people he met. Um, it's just, you think about what a waste it was that, you know, I mean, he didn't go out there and try to kill himself, but yeah. on the other hand, what was yeah, going to happen? <laughs> I mean, on the other hand, he was unprepared for what, how things ended up, I think. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. They, I mean, they both sound like such interesting guys. Um, oh, yeah. At Reverend Roos, I'd love to go on his solo journeys and seem to make friends and learn wherever he went. I um, wrote down, I said, well, this all sounds terrible for me personally, <laughs> um, but it's but it, it's cool. It's just a different type of type of person. And you tell a little story about how he was confused at first, thinking um, people wanted him to share his water. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, I mean, that's a perfect example of what kind of guy he was. Yeah. Those guys. I mean, that was what inspired them. By him is because, I mean, you know, this kid's a sunburned. I mean, you know, they, they, he's described and, and well, I sent you some photographs to put up on the website in case people didn't know what he looks like, but he's a very fair skinned kind of a Nordic, you know, uh, background. Mm-hmm. And so he's sunburned, scorched, you know, really thirsty, saving what little water he has. And these guys stop to give him water and he tries to give them water because he thought they were thirsty. Uh-huh. I mean, come on, man. I mean, that's the kind of those are the kind of people you want to stick around. Sure. You know, it's not it's, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, there's not yeah, there's not a better kind of act of character, I think. You yeah. Know, and, you know, like his that. family was super tight. I mean, you know, and, you know, again, I keep drawing the parallels between these stories, and I guess it's because. I know that Chris was inspired by Everett Roos to do kind of what he did. Um, but so it's easy to parallel the stories. But, you know, he didn't leave behind a great family life, but he left behind a, his sister who he's really close with and then left behind all these friends that he made. And Everett was the same way, except in his case, he was really close with his family. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they traveled. They were nomads. I mean, there's a reason he ended up the way that he did. Right. His family drug him all over the country, you know, and they were, you know, his dad's a minister, a Unitarian minister. Of all mm-hmm. And his mom's an artist and they're poets and they, you know, and it's just like you know, the perfect. This is a guy who's like a hippie. 30 years before that was a thing yeah, you know? yeah, and the whole family really. And so, you know, it's, it's sad to see what happened to it. You know, he, he was living out of a backpack, right. You know, walking the range, walking the trail and, you know, and, and goes hungry for days at a time, but was thrilled at every moment he had. And he just kept doing it. He comes home just long enough to graduate school and then leaves again. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, just so he can go back on the road. And he just, one over everybody, you know, again, parallel in the stories, but, you know, he ends up in San Francisco or, you know, he meets that artist, Edward Weston. Then he ends up in San Francisco where he meets like, you know, Dorothea Lange and Ansel Adams, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they just like accept him and take him in. I mean, ever Weston guys, him like living in his garage, you know, so he can teach him how to paint. I mean, he must have been a great kid. That's all you can think of. He must have been a great guy. Yeah. Said he had, yeah, said he had a fire in his heels. And um, when you talk about the people he met and the things he did like that, it almost reminds me also of like, they could have easily done something with this and made it like a Forrest Gump type thing, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
just <laughs> randomly walking through history and finding yeah, all this crazy all these different people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, like I said, two sheep herders are the last known people to have seen him, uh, but he did carve the word Nemo or nobody in the rock before he vanished. Uh, you missed an opportunity here to call this episode Finding Nemo. I know, Nemo. Finding Nemo. <laughs> I know, I thought of that, but somewhere, I don't know, just recently I ran across some, speaking of Nemo, about that and somebody was talking about animation and they were talking about that movie and they were talking about how their i their theme their their they believe there was a hidden meaning to the movie and that it, Nebo's dad was insane and that his son had died a long time ago and he was out still hunting for him because he called him Nemo, which means no one. So who are you looking for? No one. You know what I mean? So yes. I, I, I don't, I don't, I just thought that was funny. And it, I remembered it every time I'd write down Nemo in this episode and I'm like, yeah. oh man, again. So, uh, no, that's a very, yeah. I love those crazy Disney type <laughs> things like I that. Um, so yeah, the search party eventually finds another Nemo. Um, people, they, there were theories about what happened, but, Nothing really ever stuck. And so they grab uh, Neil Johnson, spent his whole life in the outdoors and signs up to track Everett. So is this guy how I imagine him to be? Just like front, yeah, I, I don't know. Kind of that, tracker? Yeah, I, I would assume he's like a minor. I mean, dude, it's like 1935. You know, he's a minor in the mountains. I mean, you know, he's about 100 years too late. Okay. You know, for seeking gold in the California mountains, but whatever. So I'm guessing he's probably like, you know, a mountain man type, you know, except in the 1930s, you know, gotcha. just uh, one of those guys like a throwback type, you know, like. Got uh, it. Got it. So, yeah, would have wanted to be out west, you know, 40, yeah, 50 exactly. years before. Exactly. Still, you know, cowboy clothes and the the whole bit, you know, and it, one of those guys who puts his uh, his head down on the on the, the ground and says, hmm, three horses coming this way. You know, and one's <laughs> yeah. a chestnut one, you know, it's like, you know, it's one of those deals, but he didn't have any better life than anybody else does so yeah him tad nichols says it probably wasn't killed by native americans more likely flash flood or falls off a cliff i mean there's tons of potential well, the cliff thing you can almost understand after the you know the little piece about the archaeologists and it's the middle of a thunderstorm oh yes who falls up on top of the bluff trying to paint pictures of the storm <laughs> and it's like you know and he's terrified because he's sure this kid's going to die on his watch right. in his archaeology camp which means he'll have to do all the paperwork yeah even though the kid's not even supposed to be there in the first place you know but yeah <laughs> yes yeah, so, yeah, i mean there's i think a lot of these were pretty plausible at first explanations for what could have happened to this guy you know right. like, yeah there's a lot but you know the one thing that is weird though um the one thing that i've always found odd mm -hmm. and and but there's no way to pursue it any further you know i when you when you get these disappearances like this and you know when they're so when they've looked everywhere and there's just no place for them to be found and you know i mean because of other stuff i write and i don't mean true crime stuff my my thoughts are always, what if there's something supernatural involved, or what if there's Ooh, something yeah. paranormal? Well, the only reason I say that is the the oddest thing because of the distance um, was when, like in the 1960s, those archaeologists found like Everett's canteen and some of his gear, you know, the razor blades and the yep. dried up paint tubes and stuff, in a bizarre spot far away from everything else, and it's like. How how did that end up there? I mean, there are plausible explanations for that, too. Maybe somebody did rob and kill him. You know, mm -hmm. maybe they robbed him, killed him, hit his body, took off with his pack and then find out there's nothing worthwhile in it and just drop it. Or maybe there was they took out whatever they wanted out of it and then just tossed it aside and it sat there, you yeah. know, kind of like that when we had that Grand Canyon episode. And there was that guy that disappeared off his boat, and they didn't find him until like the 70s. Yeah. And then just by accident, somebody found his bones and he'd been there all along. Right. Maybe it's the same kind of thing. You know, maybe just people just walked over it, you know. And you also, we're also talking about these outdoor disappearances are tough because there's so much. I mean, you know, for you to say, oh, we had hundreds of people searching the canyon lands of Utah. Do you know how big that is? <laughs> it's a, that's a lot. Yeah, you're not going to put a dent in it. Yeah. No. And so even if you have a rough idea where he went, you don't really know for sure. You know, um, and then, you know, there's even 
there were even some people that questioned and I don't know if I got into this too much in the story just because it just got so confusing. But there were a few people who even after the the mules were found Mm -hmm. in that corral, there were some people who were like that guy was kind of a nut. And so some of the people in town were like, we don't know if he really found him when he said he did. We mm-hmm. think he might have found them you know, before that, and they may not have been Everett's. And I mean, there was a lot. I mean, there's so many questions. Yeah. You know? I, I I think this story is one of those you can't follow. You can't follow the evidence in this story. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the reason one of the reasons I decided to combine it the way that I did with Chris McCandless's story is because we have romanticized these stories. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Chris's story, we know how it ends. Unfortunately, we don't know how Everett's ends. But on the other hand, they were two peas in a pod. You know, they really were. And so this is Everett's story is is more romanticized than probably anything else we'll cover this entire season because there's just no possible way to know what really happened. And there's so many possibilities and so much ground that was never covered. Um, I, I added in the part about the body that was discovered just because I thought it was so interesting, you know, because they really thought they'd found him and then turns out they didn't. Right. Yeah, they did. DNA tests revealed that it, in fact, was Everett until it wasn't, wasn't. <laughs> anymore. Yeah. 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 But I, I think I, I think you might be onto something with um with the whole, you know, no, not knowing how this one ends compared to the other one thing. And I think that or the other story, I think that sometimes I also want to um tread lightly on some things because it's like, what? OK, what if we did get to the bottom of it? What if we did get to the truth? And it just really sucked. You know how he how know, it ended. I know we, we this is one of those that. stories. Yeah, this is a story you don't want a sucky ending on. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You just don't. I mean, I think that's why so many of his friends were kind of like, oh, well, you know, he probably ended up uh, adopted by the Navajo tribe. Yeah, and just yeah, decided yeah. to never come back because that sounds good. You know, that sounds good rather than to think um, he died of thirst in the middle of the desert because he fell and broke his leg. Yeah, that's awful. You know, mm-hmm. and this is a kid that everybody liked. So it's I don't know. Like I yeah. said, it's kind of you know what? I thought it was best to follow the follow um, the Ambrose beer story with this one, mm-hmm. because that's the same kind of story. I yeah. mean, as we said at the beginning of this, that's another romanticized story of, you know, I don't want to think that I don't want to think that beer's. Um, that Ambrose Bierce was shot to death by a firing squad. Yeah. Oh, you know what? He probably wouldn't have cared. Well, he probably would have um, said something crazy at the end. As yeah, his that, last word. He probably wouldn't even have cared. He probably figured that he deserved it and he'd go out in a, you know, a blaze of glory. So yes. he probably wouldn't care. But I think his daughter and his, you know, the secretary who was like a daughter probably would. So it's better to think that maybe he just passed away from natural causes or something and and Pancho Villa hit it because they didn't want an American dying on their watch. You know, I I don't know. Um, But those are a couple of stories that are pretty romanticized when we've done some other ones that were definitely not. Um, And we'll have many more that are definitely not coming up. Um, So I don't know. These two stories do kind of go hand in hand, these last Mm -hmm. two episodes, but uh, we'll be getting away. We'll be getting away from that, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So just um, people, yeah, people just enjoy not letting the truth, you know, get in the way of a good story. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, we just don't know. We can just leave these very vague and we just don't know, you know, and we we're we're trying to make the outcome as um, as much as as much as the people involved would have liked it to be. Let's there put you it go. that way. So. There you go. Yes. Well, is there anything else that um, I skipped over, or glossed over or anything that you wanted to? talk about or harp on with these particular no, not, guys not, no not really i think i mean i think that i've said what i wanted to say and 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 that was just that these stories are you know they're so i mean romantic doesn't sound right but as far as romantic like indiana jones romantic mm-hmm. i guess but that's the way i that's why i wanted to leave it with that quote you know that wallace stegner quote because a lot of people have written about Everett, and the more they write up, more people who write about him, the more romantic the story gets. You know, the only book that wasn't, it was a recent one, and it was about the DNA tests. But unfortunately, uh, that ended up in uh, the remainder piles uh, after the book came out because it was all about how we found him. 
Mm-hmm. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a downer. Eesh. Yeah. And it turned out it wasn't. So it's still a good read up if you just have to know when to stop. Right, right. <laughs> stop the story. Um, but you know, a lot of guys were writing about this back in the 40s and 50s. A lot of those guys who write about who were at that time writing about the you know, it was an era where like Arizona Highways magazine was in every dentist's waiting room, and which is just mostly just filled with pretty pictures of Arizona. So mm-hmm. the desert became very romanticized in the 30s, 40s and 50s, especially. You know, that's what all the stories started about, like the lost Dutchman mine and all that stuff. And if you haven't heard of that, I'll explain it to you at some point or, you know, who knows, we may do a podcast on it because it is a great story. So anyway, um. I, you know, and that's kind of this, you know, primitive wanderer of the wastelands, you know, come on. Right. Yeah, we get it. So, but, you know, anyway, he died like Ambrose Spears, just mm. like he wanted to, if he just died, if he died, if he died, he might still be out there. somewhere. So for all we know, that's where all his kids are right now on the reservation. So yeah, he's having a great time. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's okay. Well, it is now time. Uh, I want to give some quick shout outs to our, our latest patrons, our subscribers on Patreon. So thank you so much for supporting the show to Audra, Brandon, Susie, Tammy, Amy, Lynette, and Melissa. And I know there are a lot more of you. Yeah, uh, we're going to have a lot more coming up soon. Yeah. Up. <laughs> yeah. But uh, thank you so much for supporting the show. As we mentioned before, we've just started the third season. Um, it sounds really cool. And um, it's, it's, yeah, I'm excited. I, I really am excited about it. I, I, um, in fact, was working on uh, an episode today before we recorded this. And I am really excited about this season. I'm um, having a lot of awesome. fun with it. And, um, I'm still working on a voice for H.H. H. Holmes, so he hasn't, was wondering. He, hasn't, he hasn't said much yet just because I don't have I haven't decided on the voice. So mm-hmm. and I'd like to get one and keep it for the whole time. Right. Obviously, instead of my uh, often changing Norwegian for <laughs> Bell Gunness. So that was hard, man. Come on. So anyway, you, uh, I just decided I'm not doing any more accents. So, I mean, any more like. um you know, uh, foreign accents, so European accents or anything. It's not happening. So yeah. uh, I got to pick and choose my stories very carefully. It's a tr- it's you know it's a tricky uh, line to walk. And you, yeah. you did it. We didn't get one complaint or well, any, no, a lot no. of a lot of laughter. But yeah. that's okay because I'm laughing too. Because when I'd hear them, I'd go, "Oh God!" You know, when I'd go back and listen. But whatever. Shit, I listen. I say that when I have to listen to myself narrate uh, in general with my own voice. Oh, so. just imagine with me, man. Sometimes if you'd mess up a part with the accent, I'd get to listen to it two or three times and get yeah, the no same kidding. laugh uh-huh. over and over again. Yeah, no kidding. Oh, I love okay, it. so so we mentioned Patreon. So one last thing I'll mention, yeah. and then I'll shut up. Um, you know, thanks for listening. Uh, share us with your friends. Review us on iTunes. I know it's uh, you may not listen on iTunes, although most people do. But if you don't, that's okay. That's cool. Uh, but you got to leave us a review on there because mm-hmm. that's how more and more and more people see it. So, but I did want to remind everybody about the discount code. Please, you sure be sure to use that when you're shopping for books or tours or events or anything at AmericanHauntings.net. Any of our websites, um, it it all goes to the same checkout online store. So if you use the discount code podcast, when you go to check out, uh, you'll get an automatic 10% off everything you order. Um, it's also on Cody's American hauntings, clothing.com website too. Uh, so you can use the same code there and still get the discount. So, uh, don't forget to do that, uh, when you're shopping because, uh, you might as well save some money. So, Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And um, I, I sort of muddied this up a little bit because I have ghostwriters on here, but I didn't have any email from people oh, because shoot, the, I forgot the, about that. Well, that's the thing is um, that I was going to mention ghostwriters, but every we still get a lot of emails, but most of them lately have been um, like either like personal stories or like, hey, please don't read this. But I just oh, want to sure. say thanks and this and yeah, that and the other thing. Yeah. So um, I just wanted to still acknowledge that um, you can email us at American Hauntings podcast at gmail dot com. Um, and sometimes it doesn't have to be something that you want read out online. If you just want to you know, ask questions, say thanks, say hi, whatever, um, still hit us up. And I still appreciate and read all those emails. So I just wanted to make sure. Um, to mention that, but yeah, I don't have any fun stories or complaints oh, okay, or anything this good. week. Yeah, I, so. I forgot about that. I'm sorry. I didn't no, walk right over it's it. It's because I, I started going into Patreon as ghostwriters and I, <laughs> I muddied it up, but uh, I think, yeah, we've said enough, man. So uh, yeah. this this episode of the American Hauntings podcast <laughs> was written by Troy Taylor and is produced and edited by me, They're Cody Beck. Uh, 
I, I, I really wasn't going to do this. I, for one time, <laughs> I was going to let you read through this, but it just reminded me that um, we got a complaint that um, I'm going to guess from a new listener who complained because I interrupted you. Oh, yeah. So well, I'm thinking that someone who hadn't heard the previous six seasons, but yeah. I thought it was funny. I, I, I wish there was a way to comment on those because they, I, I, I'm kind of glad that we can't comment on them, but oh, I, do, yeah, I, right. I appreciate when people come to my rescue and then they listen to the next one and they're like, oh, okay, now we yeah, get now it. I get it. But, so anyway, yeah, yeah I, I always interrupt Cody. Sorry, guys. Kind it's just a stick we do. So, yeah. but if you so enjoyed you know. the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Tell your friends. Don't interrupt people. Yeah. Uh, random people in the street about it. Yeah, don't interrupt them. If they're in the middle interrupt of the Interrupt them. Yeah, the people and that you follow tell. us on iTunes, Spotify, right. Stitcher. Oh, ran- okay. Or Sorry, anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast, see the website, AmericanHoneysPodcast.com for more info about the show, notes, photos, links, and more. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, anywhere else you waste hours a day when you're supposed to be working or studying. We promise that we're probably much more entertaining. Yeah. I should have put problems. Yeah, we kind of. It was a big leap we took there. Um, But yeah, thanks to Lizzie. We couldn't, definitely wouldn't do it without you. So until next time, goodbye. So long. See you later. See ya. All right, we're going to have to see how this, how it sounds. Fingers crossed.